0: Hollywood, is Rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. Um, I am your host, Rob Watson, and as always, we have a really intriguing, exciting topic for you today. Um, Brody, uh, my producer, uh, kind of brought the, the film that we're going to be talking to, uh, talking about um, to my attention uh, a few weeks ago and said, uh, hey, there's this production, it is called Hamlet Horatio, and uh, it's sort of a new take on the classic Shakespeare's Hamlet. And I was so excited over the concept, and after I saw the film, very excited about its execution, but very excited about the concept because having studied Shakespeare for years and having read the play, having seen the play um, in its different forms and, and uh, different stars and, and different talent that has come through it, um, this aspect of the tale has been screaming to be told, in my opinion, forever. And I was just absolutely thrilled that somebody had taken it on and um and, and very excited to see what they did with it. And uh, so uh, we have not only the discussion of the film, but we have Paul Warner, who is the director of the film, and the film editor, uh, Sean Robinson, and the editing of the film is absolutely fantastic. Um, but we have that creative team on board with us today, uh, to talk about their work and, uh, we're going to get into it. Um, uh, so very, very excited. And this is, um, a movie that will be coming out shortly and we'll find out when and where and you need to go see it. If you're not a Shakespeare lover, um, you need to see it and become a Shakespeare lover. And if you are a Shakespeare lover, I can guarantee you this will both fascinate you and hopefully excite you. Um, It's extremely well done and well, well worth it. Um, Before we get into that, I am going to go to uh, my esteemed co-host, Brody Levesque, who is the editor of the Los Angeles Blade newspaper. Uh, We have some breaking news that has happened in the last day or so that has to do with civil rights. And um, Brody is going to tell us uh, all about that. Brody,
1: welcome to the show today. Okay, Rob. Good afternoon and good morning, good day, and thank all of you for listening to Rated LGBT Radio and subscribing to our podcasts. We really appreciate uh, you and uh, sticking with us every week as we bring you, hopefully, uh, unique stories. Um, Unfortunately and sadly uh, for women in the state of Texas, the United States Supreme Court, after midnight last night, released a ruling in a 5-4 decision that, for all intents and purposes, as constitutional lawyer and my fellow journalist Mark Joseph Stern points out, makes Roe v. Wade functionally overturned. Um, the court, uh, in its vote, uh, the liberals were joined by U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, um, basically is going to let stand uh, Texas Senate Bill 8. Texas Senate Bill 8 is a law that prohibits abortions in Texas after six weeks. There are no exceptions for rape or incest. The law is considered one of the most restrictive in the nation. Uh, It is banning procedures at a point in the pregnancy uh, during that first six weeks when many women aren't even aware of the fact that they are pregnant. Now, it just didn't stop there. The bill has a proviso in it that authorizes what's known as a private civil rights of action. This would allow members of the general public, okay, to sue anyone who might have violated the restrictions of Senate Bill 8, which basically means that the state legislature just authorized civilians to be bounty hunters. Uh, and what happens in this case is that the individuals, okay, can be sued. In other words, a pregnant mother or a abortion provider could be sued by anyone in the state of Texas who brings a lawsuit. Okay. And they could be awarded, the people suing these individuals could be awarded at least $10,000 for each abortion that the defendant was involved in. And the worst part was the defendants would have to pay for it, okay, um, which is awful. It's just nasty. Um, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, Justin Breyer, of course, were joined by the Chief Justice. Uh, on that last bit about paying a bounty, uh, Justice Breyer uh, took aim and, in his dissent, wrote the following. I agree with the Chief Justice, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, that Texas law delegates to private individuals the power to prevent a woman from obtaining an abortion during the first stage of pregnancy. But a woman has a federal constitutional right to obtain an abortion during that first stage. Now, Chief Justice Roberts, when he wrote his dissent, was very careful and took pains to explain the following. This is the Chief Justice. Although the court denies the applicant's request for emergency relief today, The court's order is emphatic in making clear that it cannot be understood as sustaining the constitutionality of the law at issue. But although the court does not address the constitutionality of this law, it can, of course, promptly do so when the question is properly presented. So what they essentially did was they dodged. The case was brought through the Texas court into the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The people that were fighting the state of Texas on this, which included uh, care providers, Planned Parenthood, and others, tried to get an emergency injunction and relief, first at the U.S. District Court level and then the Court of Appeals. Both The Court of Appeals overruled them. They took it to SCOTUS. Um, The law was due to take effect on September 1st. On Sunday, they were in front of the Supreme Court. Initially, the court didn't hear the case, which meant come the 1st, the law took effect. And then to kind of pour salt in the room, then the court yesterday, went ahead, had, considered it and issued this ruling. And the reason, more than likely, is because of the outrage that occurred because they let this bill become law without any kind of pushback from the court at all. This, unfortunately, made it worse. Now, the law is still going to be litigated, and I need to point out that it will be litigated uh, in, in the federal courts. Um, A friend of the show and a dear friend of mine, uh, the National Center for Lesbian Rights Legal Director, Shannon Minter, sent me an email last night. This is what Shannon said. Today's decision by a majority of the Supreme Court to greenlight a blatantly unconstitutional Texas abortion ban should be a wake-up call to every LGBTQ person in this country. We cannot count on this court to protect our freedom. Every day that goes by without the passage of a federal anti-discrimination law, for LGBTQ people brings us closer to being stripped of the hard-won rights and protections that we have struggled for decades to secure and still do not exist in many states. The court's decision will inspire copycat abortion bans in other states and accelerate the already overwhelming tsunami of anti-LGBTQ state laws. We are in a full-blown red state backlash against equality for women, black and brown people, and LGBT communities, and our Supreme Court has abandoned any pretense of protecting vulnerable minorities. We must turn to Congress for protection and do everything in our power to enact federal protections for reproductive autonomy and a federal law prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. It also needs to be pointed out that several other constitutional lawyers realize that with this particular decision by the high court, it also could chip away at same-sex marriage and, quite frankly, even Lawrence v. Texas, which, of course, was in Texas' sodomy law. And before anybody thinks it's far-fetched, the truth of the matter is, Congress has never passed any laws to enshrine the rights of the LGBTQ community in those two particular areas. Now, several states have, but if you take in a state where that is not the case, such as one of these red states, there is a good likelihood that a lawsuit could be brought that could overturn Ogrebroffell or Windsor or, worse, Lawrence Texas. Are we in that kind of environment and are we in that kind of condition? The truthful answer is yes, we are. So, uh, you know, a cautionary note, folks. Elections matter. And at the end of the day, The Republican Party has shown its true colors. They do not care. They will take whatever means necessary to, you know, abrogate or deny people their rights that don't agree with their particular, peculiar viewpoints, religious foundations, or whatever else you want to consider it. You know, the truth of the matter is that this is where we're at, and this is where we're going to continue to be at. And the only way to, quite frankly, stop this nonsense is you've got to get these Republicans out of office, and that's really the end of it. Anyway, Rob? Yeah,
0: yeah. There's something I want to go over with you on this, Brody, um, because uh, the, the point that you made um, is is uber-valid in terms of the legislatures across the country and people passing the laws. Um, well, you framed the, the law as one that, you know, even worse, it throws it to private individuals to enforce and they can sue and, and all of that. Um, in a piece, I think it was in the Washington Post that I read, where um, the legal expert actually was stating that not only, that isn't necessarily even to say that makes it worse, but that is actually how it got by the Supreme Court, is because the Supreme Court uh, and the, the person who wrote this argued that the Supreme Court really didn't have any choice because of the way the law is written, that if the state was the enforcer, they could have come down and said, no, the state, you cannot do this. But because it was thrown out to the public to enforce, that changes the game. And going back to your point, so there virtually would be nothing to stop them in other states going after LGBTQ rights by enforcing it the same way. So that they say that it is illegal to do this, to have same sex relations, and private individuals can sue you if they know that you're doing that. You know, for example. And
1: that's that's where it gets kind of draconian. Well, the other problem that goes with this too is that the United States is already undergoing what Numerous people, including myself, are calling a balkanization in reference to the breakup of Yugoslavia, where the states that made up the former country of Yugoslavia ended up in bloody civil war. And it was because of religious and uh, sectarian differences. The United States is experiencing that now, and it is experiencing it as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic. The mask and vaccination issue has now gotten critical. The impact of global warming, which is now very much in evidence. I mean, uh, to my friends, Paul and Sean, who are waiting on deck and listening to this, uh, you guys lost your MTA yesterday, and I saw raw video footage from 30 Rockefeller that uh, showed uh, several of the subway steps that I've trudged up looking like Niagara Falls. Here in California, as you know, we have what has now turned into the largest fire uh, fire in state history, and it's burning across state lines into Nevada. You know, arguably, the balkanization is taking place. You have people that, quite frankly, you know, have a very peculiar way of looking at things. I'm going to note without any small irony at all whatsoever that the vast majority of this nonsense comes out of the former Confederate States of America. And it is propelled forward by a peculiar interpretation of a bizarre religious uh, look and the way they do things in their evangelical, Pentecostal, and other ways, and, of course, conservatism in general, and their unique interpretations of what they think, you know, the country should be. And at the end of the day, this is where we're at.
0: Um, yeah, okay. I I'm, I'm, think I followed your point there. Um, but, yes, we're at, at this point. Um, I think it goes to the upper levels of, of um, the parties, though, in that uh, you've got the legal establishment that is uh, philosophically on each side Going after whatever will work and whatever will quote unquote win, and they are dodging and weaving um, to get things through. We've got that with the uh, recall election here in California that could potentially set up um, somebody in office who is completely not democratically elected It would be elected by a a mere small minority but because the system is set up in this way and people are working the system that they get it um, through. And I think that's the case with this abortion law is that it is is not being done under principle. It isn't being argued in the course on principle. It's being argued because it's being twisted and turned and using systems in a way that um, uh, have loopholes. And um, I think we need some diligent look at that. And unfortunately, our population is so addicted to the meme and to the instant gratification uh, flash of, on both sides, both liberal and conservative, that people only get charged up if it's hugely emotional, hugely quick, and you can understand it in less than a minute. And a lot of these things have to do with more complicated systems that that need addressing and they're boring and they're but they're important. And um, that comes down to the issues of systematic racism and other things that are established and entrenched because the solutions to them are not quick, easy fixes. So I don't know if that supported your point or argued against it, Brody, but there you go.
1: There's there's another good point. <laughs> well, let's talk film, because I got to be honest with you. This is my hour break away from politics. <laughs> okay, well, Cole, let's,
0: let's, yeah, let's turn back the clocks to when we didn't have coronavirus and we didn't have global warming. We just had one man's problem in the state of Denmark. And with that, I do want to welcome to the show uh, director Paul Warner and film editor. Sean Robinson. Welcome gentlemen. Thanks. Thank,
1: Thank you, you very for much. having
0: us. Uh, very, very thrilled to have you guys and a uh, remarkable film that you guys have put together. Uh, before we get into the details of the film, when and where will this be released so people can see it?
2: Well, it's uh, at the moment it, it's been released on Amazon and Apple um, but it's going to be rolling out in Europe. Uh, the producer just told me yesterday, um, I, uh, in, uh, uh, I believe in October, um, so I don't know the exact dates, but it is actually available on Amazon and Apple, and then it's going to be available on Voodoo in about a month. Excellent, excellent.
0: So, um, Paul, both of you guys have enormous credits and, and – um, We would definitely take up the full rest of the hour if I go through them in detail. You are both incredibly accomplished. Paul, you've got 50 theater credits that you've done, which is astronomical. Um, Of all your work, film and theater, uh, what previous um, projects did you do that – I know it's like your children. You don't want to pick one that you love more than the other – but what are some of the ones that are were kind of like the, yes, this is the pinnacle of what I wanted to do and why I got into this?
2: Well, I mean, interesting that, that this was, um, you know, Shakespeare, because the, the thing that, I mean, I started as an actor at Harvard, and the, the project that launched everything was a, a musical adaptation of Twelfth Night, which which I did very early on with Peter Melnick as the composer. Um, and I think, you know, that, uh, and that was uh, basically, you know, inspired by um, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. So it was a, you know, completely, um, you know, freeing uh, moment. And I thought and, and that's certainly a, a huge inspiration and probably, um most recently the opera that I did at the Brishnikov Center that was about well, it was going to be, it was about Hillary Clinton. Um, and her winning the presidency before she lost. Um and, you know, about women in power and the rise of female uh, consciousness. So and that was a more experimental opera by Du Yun, the Chinese composer who won the Pulitzer. Um and I and those two felt like You know, one was when I was starting out and one is later in the career, a kind of, uh, compilation of all the techniques in theater that I had, um, been developing, particularly with Eastern movement techniques and so forth, (laughs) you know, that, those are the two things. And, um. Interestingly, right before the shutdown, I did I revisited uh, this new musical in Tel Aviv called River of Stone that we had started developing when I was at Harvard. Um, And uh, Ty Defoe, who's actually in the film Hamlet, Horatio, um, the great performer who did Straight White Men on Broadway, um, he wrote the book, Um, and so that that would be the third thing. that I feel like is you know um, a, a kind of a pinnacle of
0: a lot, a lot of the experimentation I've been doing. Yeah. What, one of the things that I, I'm sort of observing as as kind of a forte to your talent is um, you seem to have a passion for taking modern situations and infusing them back into expression through more classical um, uh, depictions. For example, in the film uh Hamlet Horatio, uh I think you've made commentary before about how the relationship between uh Gertrude and Claudius you kind of patterned after the Trump's and um, you know sort of brought that those elements into this modern production. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that and, and that vision you have of taking the modern and infusing it into the classics?
2: You mean with Hamlet, Horatio specifically, or any any project?
0: In general, in general.
2: Oh well, yeah. I mean, because the classics, whether it's Agamemnon, which I've done, you know I've done a lot of classics, but you know the classics it kind of repeat themselves. I mean, you know, there's a, a way to look at them um, and learn something about what's really happening in society. I mean, you see that nothing, you know, in terms of corruption has ever changed, but I, I've always felt and this is a really huge goal with Hamlet is to 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 deconstruct the material and find how it's going to have relevance To a contemporary audience it's not like about putting people in street clothes and doing silly things but it's looking at the 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 universal themes um you know of family and you know unrequited love and uh um you know betrayal and jealousy and 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 rethinking that in relation to a contemporary audience you understand what i'm saying
0: Oh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that And is, that was something that is saying with... Yeah. No, that, that is the weight of it. I mean, that, that is what... what makes, I mean, because it's, it's all the other stuff, you know, which people have done on Broadway and stuff where they've, you know, done it with different costumings, to your point, and different aesthetics. Those are all kind of superficial, and after the first 10 minutes, after you're used to it, those things kind of get pretty old. But when you're speaking to the heart through the play, that's what hooks people, in my opinion. So, yeah. Right, exactly.
2: Yeah, it's really the the premise, uh, you know, getting to what I call the directorial spine is like how it's very hard to direct things that you don't have an emotional, deeply emotional commitment to. And that's always what I'm looking for is, you know, what in this piece of material? And I've done a lot of, you know, new and contemporary stuff, but what is, what in that, Piece of material is moving to me, and will allow me to communicate to the designers and actors in a way that's visceral rather than intellectual. Um, right. right. And, and and I mean, I didn't really set out to direct a lot of classical things, but you know, especially if you're around the art at Harvard, where I you know grew up. Um, uh, the, the, the Robert Brewstein Theater is a, a lot of deconstruction and experimental work. Um, you know, like Diane Paulus is the artistic director there, but there's so much experimental work with reimagining classics. Um, and so that had a lot of influence on me.
0: Yeah, it's, I've, I've always imagined that this is a little off topic, but uh, somebody could take Hamlet and actually make sort of a modern slasher film out of it. I mean, it's, it, it's not a story that people end up well in. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Hamlet three, you know, Halloween three type thing. Um, but I want to open, go back to what you were saying though, Paul, um, and open this up to both you and Sean. What, what is it about the material of Hamlet that spoke to each one of you of getting you excited to be part of this project? And Paul, from your standpoint, almost like the visionary of the project.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, well, the original thing, and then I'll let Sean have... you know, who has a very deeply emotional connection when he's editing. But my close friend, David Bonda, who's actually the cinematographer in the film and wrote the screenplay, um, I mean, had been working on it for five years, it – I mean, quite honestly, in the, in terms of the foundation and the stuff that connected us with it, the Hamlet Horatio relationship was ultimately connected to a friend that um passed away from AIDS. <clears throat> um and, and a dynamic that was con- that was personal for a lot of the people that were involved. Um but uh, you know, ultimately the emotional connection is, it's it, 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 the the core of it as we went through draft after draft after draft because it took about five years um, on the script itself uh is you know about uh rising above rage like uh, uh, the spiritual journey in terms of you know because hamlet is filled with rage and it's about the journey to to light um, and that's what the spotlights are throughout the film so that's For me personally, uh, as I worked with the material, one of the driving forces, but interesting to hear
0: Sean's point of view too. Um, Yeah,
3: sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I I was turning it over to you. (laughs) Definitely want to hear your point of view. (laughs) All right, thanks for having us on the show, um, Robin Brody. I really appreciate it. Um, And yeah, in terms of the film, uh, I guess it was initially, I mean, I, my connection to Paul, we've collaborated on films for the last decade or so, plus. So um, for me, it was kind of the culmination of that. And it was like, the you know, it was a way to, um, it was also my first feature, actually, come to think of it. I, right now I work in a lot of short-form commercials, and this was the first, I mean, the first, I would say, somewhat low budget feature <laughs> i probably shouldn't say that um but um that i've done you know so i'm proud of that you know that's my first kind of feature credit that is that's a feather in the cap and um and and, and, and the, even though it's slightly low budget it's it, it's really really a terrific film and and you would never realize it because this cinematography is so great and because paul can direct um you know the phone book and make it interesting he's he's really skilled at um working with actors and the actors shine really well so what what really drew me to it is just working with paul and being able to sink my teeth in to a feature um which is you know very slow and different from the um from the lane that i'm in now which is which is all for viacom and it's like short form
0: no excellent and your your work on it was excellent i mean the editing is is you know i'm not an editor by trade but i can recognize the challenge there and the uh the pace of the film was certainly there thanks in, in in no small part to the editing
3: um, yeah, music I, oh sorry no go ahead i said it comes to music videos and i realized you know shakespeare is typically interpreted as not being you know maybe young and trendy or whatever so being able to fuse some of that Chicago faster editing to sh- into Shakespeare and make it a little bit more, um, you know, faster, a little bit sharper, I thought would be a nice spin on it as well.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, no that, I, that I think that definitely. That,
3: a, oh yeah, go
2: ahead. yeah, that was yeah, definitely. no, a that
0: good and the light, light, the lighting.
2: Go ahead, Paul. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean that was definitely a go because a lot of people, particularly younger, you know. They're like, I- I'm not going to see any Shakespeare. <laughs> and, and that, you know, to to make the score and the music, make everything very clear about the core of the piece, so that it brings a whole new audience to it. And definitely Sean is, um, <clears throat> you know, I like sometimes things that are very slow and lyrical. That's my style, but the acting beats very drawn out. And Sean will pull it back in a, you know, and. Pick up the pace and, um, it, so that, uh, back and forth, you know, brings a kind of a really contemporary energy, um, to the project. Um, but yes, what were you going to say?
0: Yeah, well, the the editing and the cinematography with the, and you brought this up before, with the lights and the, the brightness and it, it created almost an organic pulse through the whole piece that I think was very driving and very, uh, effective. It, I mean, it worked with the beat of the material, but it also then underscored kind of moving forward. It never got slow. It never was one of those, Oh gee, we're watching Shakespeare and you need your annotated script to understand what the heck they're talking about. I mean, it, the pace just, just carries you through it. I mean, it was, extremely well orchestrated, extremely well done, um, uh, being effective. Um, I want to move you guys to the relationship itself that is, is the core of this. Um, the, the, the film opens, and uh, the character of Horatio is actually a, um, uh, the director of a film, in the film, of Hamlet, telling the story of Hamlet, and tying poetically into the end of the film where Hamlet tells him to tell his story. Um, the I think even watching the film, I I found that I could interpret the Horatio Hamlet relationship a couple of different ways, um, and I'll I'll even back back tell you this that. Uh, my mom, who is no longer with us, used to watch films and she would come out with these very unique interpretations of the movie and what had actually happened. And we had lots of discussions. So I may be channeling her on this, but I, <laughs> I ended up with, with, with not only that these were, were, could be lovers, you know, the intimacy was at, at that intensity to this, this was a more in-depth look of the traditional they were just really good friends, which was how it's always been portrayed traditionally, Two Horatio and Hamlet are actually two personality types within the same person. And I came through and I could make an argument for each one of those. Um, you guys created this baby. Which, which, which way do you see it?
2: Well, I mean, that's why the title is Hamlet slash Horatio, which they're two flip sides of the same person. You know, it's about their spiritual journey and connection. And the third, what you just brought up, certainly is a major part of it. I mean, obviously, David Gondo, the author, um, you know, uh, is connected to the spiritual journey. For me, as the director, uh, you know, my my specific exploration is really about Horatio's unrequited love of Hamlet. And because Hamlet is battling a lot of bipolar issues, <clears throat> you know, at moments like in the steam bath scene, which of course is not in the play that's in the movie. <laughs> um, right. You know, he, right. he, he, Hamlet, you know, is a real, you know, tornado in terms of using seduction to get what he needs. And there's a, so there is a kind of subtextual layer that he's playing into Horatio's love of him, but for me as a director, you know Horatio is in love with him, but uh uh it's repressed it's, or you know and it ultimately then becomes unrequited so i mean that that's the part of the play that people just ignore I mean he's just a school friend and you know is um you know with the, with the with the diary uh, it's very clearly as with a lot of Shakespeare with the gender fluid fluidity of many pieces, um, there is a kind of bisexuality, uh, uh, particularly with the male characters or men playing women and women playing men <clears throat> that nobody seems to ever talk about specifically with Horatio. So that's, that's for me directorially, but it's, We left. I left a lot of things. I mean, those two actors, by the way, I had trained. I've been working with them a long time, and the roles were developed for them. So there's a kind of, um, you know, I left a lot of the 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 intimacy elements up to them. Um, But that's ultimately my take. Is that makes it um, really uh, a struggle? Is that Horatio? is not able to consummate fully his feelings for Hamlet um, and it's far Ugh. below it's far beyond their just their school buddies
3: I mean, right uh, yeah there's, did, there's, oh I was gonna say i i it definitely i'm just the editor of course on the film I'm not the writer but there's definitely they definitely seem gay to me <laughs> oh, yeah. well,
2: sean, sean said when he was when he first started to cut the footage and I, because we've worked together for so long, I don't even bother him while he's putting things together until we work on the fine cut. But I, I don't know if you remember Sean, but you called me one day and said, geez, I mean, boy, they sure are in love or something like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and David Vonda who plays the cinematographer, who's just a, a sweetheart. Um, you know, he, I, I think it's about a lot more about the spiritual journey, but I, I think it also um you know, as, as a man who's close to eighty, uh and when he grew up in a time where maybe you wouldn't be completely open, I think that's why you feel that there's that kind of subtext still of repression. Um you know, but I mean I mean, they are blatantly on
3: a certain level, Jack. Yeah, 2021, I mean, you know, this is like a contemporary take on it and and certainly one that hasn't been told before. Yeah, and that that was what
0: actually excited me about it because even back in the day when I first read Hamlet, saw it, um, I, even from the material, I could see that. You know that sort of relationship because even though you know you have Ophelia is presumably Hamlet's supposed love interest, um, the he doesn't seem to have that sexual passion for her the way like Romeo did for Juliet, for example. Um, Right. You know, and and the. Go ahead.
2: Oh yeah, I was just saying like that. That's one thing that I think with some audiences because it's had um, you know a lot of screenings and things that the I I, I wanted to make that point that there's in a way that he uses Ophelia as an emotional sounding board, but you can see with the kind of um, viciousness that it's really it's not really a romance. um, Right. That's not I mean, it could go either way, but I don't feel that um, that's what Shakespeare was getting at. And um, I I really uh, heightened that. You can see that in the scene where he tears up uh, the letters um, as a way to save her from his psychosis. Right. I mean, he basically is brutal with her to get her away from him because he knows that he's not capable of that intimacy with her. And I don't know that <clears throat> that's how most people view it, but that's the way, I mean, you are correct. I mean, it, it's not like
0: Roman and Juliet. I mean, they do not have that passion.
2: So,
0: yeah. And he he's easily distracted. You know, when he's got his mind on other problems, i.e. the death of his father, you know, uh, she suddenly becomes completely irrelevant to what he has going on you know it's it's like you know later honey um but the the uh one of the things that you guys kind of went out on a limb about if if i'm remembering the, the actual uh play script of hamlet was his very famous uh to be or not to be soliloquy turns into a dialogue between him and um horatio um first of all i'm hoping i'm correct on that not misspeaking but how did how did that evolve? Yeah,
2: you know that is that's in the church scene, um,
0: in the movie the church
2: scene in the movie, which is not necessarily in the play. But yeah, that well that was that's David Bondo's idea. The writer who's, who's a Shakespeare scholar. I mean, he's you know quite brilliant. And you know, in, in the evolution of the script, which I did rewrites of his rewrites, <clears throat> I said, I mean, the, this is a this is a film. I mean, he can't just recite this monologue to nothing. Um, And he came up with that idea because the splitting all of the entire speech up and making the whole scene a dialogue is connected to Horatio actually pushing Hamlet to uh, uh,
1: uh,
2: overcome his anger. So it actually becomes almost instructional. Um, And that, that, that idea came up pretty quickly in a, in a, Earlier draft, um, but that, that's the source of it.
0: Well, yeah, it, that's, it, one it, the, it was, that's one of the biggest.
2: Um, that's one of the the most. Uh, I mean, for some people, I think because of the, the, the the speech is so famous, um, you know, it was a little bit tough at first, but uh, because they're they're. Flip sides of the same character, and there's a symbiotic, almost codependent relationship. Um, I feel, I, you know, I felt like it makes the the that monologue in the scene itself, it just elevates it in a way that um, I've never really appreciated before. You know, when I've seen just the sol- soliloquy. But yeah, you picked, you got that right. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and it, it does, it, it goes to that, that dichotomy of, are they two, um, two sides to the same person or are they, you know, this, this couple that where the partner is, is saying, wait a minute, you know, stay with me here, you know, and um, you know, arguing to the person's well being, you know, which, which I think is, is legitimate and authentic. So it, it, it worked really, really well. Um, so we had alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but um, talk to me about the relationship with uh, Claudius and uh, Gertrude and the casting of all these folks. How did you come up? Uh, and I realize I just asked two huge questions in totally different directions, but you know, how, how did you get this team together? What was your motivation and, and discovery with each one of them?
2: well that's the that's the other big thing about the film when you and you picked up on the organic nature of it <clears throat> David Bondo, the writer um, and David Benzel the producer um, first of all I mean, who is a, a, an actor and a producer in new York had done Hamlet earlier and and so most of the cast and the crew um, and, and the design team the idea is that there are people that we had worked with in different realms for, you know, whether it be theater or opera, like Sean and I, and a lot of films, David, I've directed his plays. The idea was that we, that Dave and myself and David Benzel wanted to bring a visibility, you know, some people hadn't done feature films like the young guy playing Hamlet had never done a feature is to take people that we had worked with or trained um, and to develop these roles for them and for the crew to sort of elevate their talent. Um, and so mo- most everybody involved in the project are people who didn't really have a ca- casting director or casting sessions. I mean, these are people that we and we individually have worked with uh, you know for a long time. Um, and and the three, Central actors, um, Demo, who was, by the way, in the Boston Bomber and Patriot Day, the guy that plays Horatio, was a right. student of mine, and is quite. He's you know he's been doing quite well in L.A. Um, and Andrew and Paige, who plays Ophelia, were students, and those roles were developed around them. You know, uh, I mean, they were students like eight years ago, but they were developed specifically for them and and there were readings and they had input on, on those roles. The other people like Anna who plays Gertrude, who's spectacular. um, She, you know, that character is in relation to um, Claudius is basically trapped and she's an immigrant. Um, And so she doesn't speak out because she has nowhere to go. And that's something that we wanted to heighten Anna's Italian. Um, and Claudius I kind of modeled after, you know, some elements of right-wing oppression, but, um, you know, the Trump-Melania relationship, and so, uh, um, you know, and and the guy playing um, Trump, I mean, not Trump, excuse me, Claudius.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, David
2: doesn't, I mean, when I kept saying that to the producer and to David Bonda, the writer, they would laugh and whatever, but I said, I think I'm also going to get a blonde wig. I mean, then they almost passed out, but you know, cause going, we didn't want to like bang it over the head too much, but you know, that, that actor came through. Um, he had collaborated with David Wenzel, the producer, quite a bit in theater Anna, I've worked with a lot. And so has David Mondo. Um, and she's one of the great um, kind of Meisner instructors in, in New York, uh uh that at Columbia and the neighborhood playhouse. So she's just somebody that uh, we've worked with for a long time, and I wanted to bring that fragility into that role um right. the alcoholism and that i ha- originally I had her as a drug addict like um uh what's her name in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. Um, and Dave, the the writer almost passed out when I was that overt with it. And so we had to write, he said, okay, well, we got to write the flask into the script. If you're going to have her stumbling around, you know, inebriated because she can't deal with this horrible, horrible fascist, you know, Trump character. Uh, we're going to have to add that in. And, and so, you know, I really wanted to heighten, that element of the, of her being an immigrant and why she would not stand up to Claudius so that it brought some integrity to the character. Um, but anyway, hope that's the two questions. Yeah. Well, on, on the, the, because um,
0: you, you talked about this before that you had, you uh to, uh, Thimo and Andrew played Horatio and Hamlet. Um, you kind of, handed the relationship to them to develop themselves between them. What was that process like and and how did they address that? I mean, did they, did they hang out? Did they, you know, did they, you know, intellectually confer on it? You know, how did they get to their emotional truth on it?
2: Well, yes. So that's interesting because they, they actually had only met once. um, two years before we started production at a, at a dinner. Um, so they had that kind of, they had had only that one meeting. Andrew had been working with David and I over the course of a year, you know, here and there just on the role. But when we started rehearsals officially about two months before the shoot, they uh, connected quite deeply. And so they, they worked through scenes alone outside of rehearsal with me and um, are both incredibly open actors, you know, very deeply uh, vulnerable and highly intelligent. And um, they spent a lot of time uh, um, completely on their own uh, outside of the rehearsal room with me. And so I would, I would see things they were doing while I was, rehearse shooting and think, oh, that's very interesting, huh? And, and I would give a piece of direction that was the opposite and then explain to me why they were going to do it that way. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's just do it your way because you've thought that through so uh, intricately. Um, and so they, they just had a, a bond from the two months before we started shooting when they were actually in person. And um, I think also – because we were shooting at the soundstage in New Jersey where um, Black Panther was shot and Themo was living there and Andrew was living there. So they also went back and forth to the set each day um, in the morning and the afternoon. And I think they developed a lot of um, both the chemistry and a kind of daily routine um, that as a director you want to stay out of uh, uh, because – it, it in a way building that intimacy, you know, but that, that's, but they never knew each other before we put them together.
0: So it's quite right. remarkable. No. And, and, I mean, that intimacy between them, is I mean, that, that's the through line. I mean, it is, it is, you know, um, what, what is unique about this production? Um, absolutely. So, you know, a lot riding on their ability to create. So, I mean, First of all, your your or Paul, uh, your your bravery in doing this is phenomenal because it's uh, you're taking something that so many people know so well and um, you know upending it a little bit. What what positive and negative feedback have you gotten, and what what feedback surprised you?
2: Well, I mean, there there have been and again, it's still building because, and the producer, David Wendell, is doing a great job of, uh, of, you know, pounding it out all over the world with the distributor. Um, to, you know, there have been some reviews about, uh, that how fresh it is. And it's like almost a, a couple of reviews. It's like a, it said it's like a remix of your favorite song.
1: <laughs>
2: right. And then there have been. And, you know, and there's, I haven't read all of them. I mean, there's dozens all over the internet, but um, but then some which who were, who didn't get it, who, who was like, oh, they, they just, it's it's theater restaged because they didn't understand the kind of extreme close-ups and claustrophobia or the way that I was presenting it or some people have said, oh, it's too slow. Um, um, you know, so I haven't read everything, but some things, it's, it, I've been confused about it because uh uh you know I've read a couple of reviews that just talk about how it's not it's not Hamlet <laughs> and, um, I don't really know what that means um but uh I would say that three quarters of them have found it sort of illuminating or enlightening or um, I like that one review I read. It's like it's like a remix of like a Rolling Stone song, you know, like of your favorite right, right. song. And I guess on a certain level, as a deconstruction, in a way, it is. It's making people look at the material in a completely different way. Um, and uh, uh, there's been a lot of commentary, not only in the cinematography and the editing, but the sound design and score. And one thing I should mention in relation to Sean is, you know, he edits, he lays down music and sound in order to edit, and the sound, design, the soundscape is 50% of the the the, the film. Um, and right. when I've had a couple of private screenings, um, you know, with kind of prominent people, uh, I was pleased to find out that how much people had picked up on the layers of the sound design uh, which is separate from the score, but they kind of very much fuse together. And so a lot of people have noticed how that uh, uh, picks up, the, the, how the sound design underscores Hamlet's psycho- subconscious fears. Because the whole movie is in the last three minutes of his life. You know, his life is flashing before him as a film within a film. So this sound design, like what is he hearing in his head is a huge component. Uh, and I mean, uh, quite a lot of people have picked up on that, but you know, as always, you're going to have the people that, you know, there's some reviewers that say, you know, I, I don't like that. I mean, that she's an alcoholic and that everything's twisted up and that the to be or not to be speech is broken up and,
1: <laughs>
2: you know, and those people are never going to respond. And, you know, that's just that, but, um, you know i'd say three quarters of the reviews have been pretty um you know quite um supportive in different
3: ways well it's like ballet yeah. nobody it, wants to see the the same way you want to sh- do something different you know
0: yeah that's exactly it i mean it's it's it. if you had done it and put everything in exactly as they knew it before then uh, why would not they just go watch Olivier do it, or you know uh, Kenneth Branagh? Or you know, it's like it's like it's been done. So why you know the fresh take, the the new interpretation, the the, the reexamination? I think is what what makes it exciting. So, but yeah, yeah I mean, you're definitely going to get that's
1: always
2: that's always one of the struggles, you know, because. You know, t- getting attention. So that's the thing is, like, it takes it takes a lot of effort over the last six months, and it's a much slower rollout because of COVID when originally it could be in a theater, but now it's streaming and then going into theaters um, because it's Hamlet. The people think, oh, geez, Hamlet, we've seen it. So it takes a lot of extra work in terms of press or, or people talking about it. To make it clear, oh, you know, for people that hate Shakespeare you know, or never saw Shakespeare, actually, its like an acid trip, you know. <laughs> it, you know, it's like uh, it has, a, you know, it's it, it's not stodgy, and it has, uh, you know, it's a completely—it's almost its own piece. It's not Hamlet, right. and and so that's, you know, that's that's. Been quite a challenge, and you know, and slowly but surely, you know, people are discovering it, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's probably going to be a six to twelve month process because of the, you know, the, the glut. I mean, how, you know, everything suddenly, you know, opened in theaters as soon as the country, you know, reopened. Right. Um, and right. so when you see Hamlet, you think, oh, I've seen it, but I'm hoping through the you know, kindness of what you're doing and all the different reviewers that have written things that, um, and the fest, it's won quite a lot of awards and, uh, in festivals, but, yeah, um, I'm just hoping also it will they- continue, continue to build. In fact, Sean's trailer won an award.
3: <laughs> you know, I was going to um, say one thing is Paul and they are not the, uh, we're creative on the film, but we're not, you know, on the producing side. So, there's a lot of the the distribution and in the in the sales and all of that. There's somewhat where we have our hands, you know, we're not or at least hands tied in the sense that we're not really involved with that. So I, I don't know all of the distribution avenues and things like that. Um But it right. um, certainly deserves uh, you know all the attention it can get. Yeah. yeah
0: no. I, I think it. I I think it'll get a lot of attention, and, and I think in different circles of. Uh, both the Shakespeare enthusiasts who want to see new fresh Shakespeare and people who, you know, younger people who um, are intelligent and want to experience Shakespeare and haven't very much before. Um, gentlemen, we're down to our last three minutes. Uh, what have I not asked that we should have been talking about?
2: Um, well, I think you've talked about a lot of things, but <laughs> um I do, yeah the point that Sean was making you know so that's the you know that the, the the audience for this also that I think uh could the distributors could spend more time on is is the LGBTQ audience because there is you know the, a lot of the people that are working on the film are gay <laughs> and there is that oh, yeah, aspect to the film that I wish. Um, you know, not that it would be pigeon home, but uh, you know, that's something that I hope it will be discovered and particularly since mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have such an iconic um uh uh person in the the piece, uh, Ty Defoe, uh, playing the player king, uh, who's you know, done so much uh in the in the community. Uh and um and, and as you said, I'm hoping one thing we're going to work on is trying to get uh, uh, either Shakespeare companies, theater companies and universities to show the film uh, because I think it, it would be more engaging for younger people who haven't seen this type of
0: work. <clears throat> that, that would be awesome. Well, gentlemen, I've got to thank you for coming on. We are out of time. Um, the film is Hamlet Horatio Um, And uh, it it is available through Amazon, you guys said, correct? Amazon and Apple. And Apple. So check it out there. uh, Spread the word. uh, Get people to see it. It is well worth the time. Uh, Fascinating piece. If you don't know Shakespeare, it's a great introduction. If you do know Shakespeare, uh, it will be absolutely fascinating and engaging for you. you. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. We are going to be back again next week with something very, very exciting. have no idea what it is, but I do know it will be well worth listening to and um, of the same caliber that we've been producing for you. And as Brody said earlier, please do tell your friends and uh, acquaintances to subscribe. We love you very much, and we want to uh, engage much, much more uh, in the future. So for all of us here at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week. Thank you to Paul Warner and Sean Robinson for being on board and everything you do. The production was fantastic, and we can't wait to see more from you um, in the future. So, again, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Thank and you. Thank you back. both for having us. And you're More than welcome at any time, you guys. And we'll talk to you all again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.